All right, well, as most of you know, one, probably one of the more disturbing issues that has really dominated the news of probably for the last handful of months are the accusations of sexual misconduct and, um, and sexual abuse that have happened with people from people that have positions of power and authority. I mean, we've seen perpetrators exposed in all areas of the world, everything such as entertainment, corporate America, sports, uh, politics, even culinary and journalism. It's been pervasive how it's come out. And I think when I think about this, really for me, one of the most difficult things that I think about when these revelations are all coming out is knowing that so many people are going to be struggling to find peace and to find wholeness, a sense of wholeness in their lives for, for a long time because of the abuse that they have received from people of, with power and authority. Sadly, our world really is full of these stories, though, right? If you listen to the news, especially if you listen to news about, uh, that is talking about the... Uh, I like to listen to BBC News so I can hear about kind of what's going on in more than just traffic jams in the, in the Bay Area. You can hear about all these things that are happening, and a lot of so often it talks about the abuse of of power, abuse of people that are in positions of power and authority. And really, unfortunately, it's becoming increasingly easier to respond with distrust to those that have power and positions of power and authority. Thankfully, we have an example in the Bible of someone with ultimate power and ultimate authority who demonstrates power and authority in a way that actually invites us to respond in really the most life-giving way possible. Last week, we finished up, we took that long chunk, we finished up that great Sermon on the Mount. Remember that? Jesus got done with that, and Matthew tells us that the crowd was just totally blown away. Remember, they just they could not believe the teaching. His teaching was full of power and authority. Now, we're going to look at what Jesus has to say, has to say, kind of what we would say, how he puts his money, really, money where his mouth is now. And he's actually, what he's going to do, his, or he's going to show us, he's going to demonstrate his power and authority. He's going to prove his power and authority by performing miracles and he, of healing and restoration. And then what he's going to do, what, what we're going to see that Matthew is doing here by listing these demonstrations of how Jesus used his um, power and authority, we're going to see that he did it because he wants us to fully understand who Jesus is. He wants us to understand the impact of his power and authority in our lives so that we can be encouraged to respond, not negatively and not with distrust, but in the most wonderfully life-changing way possible. Let's just dive right in. Let's look at, we're going to look at these different scenarios of miracles that Jesus does as we look in, we're starting in chapter 8 of Matthew. Now, first, we're going to look first of all in just the first four verses. Let's read that. It says, when he came down from the mountain, great crowds follow him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer as a gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. 
So we see here now that Jesus comes down from this hillside where he'd been given this great sermon on the, sermon on the mount, and this, this astonished crowd, I mean, they're probably just like jaws on the ground, what they've, just, what they've been hearing, and they begin to follow him as he starts to head back to town. When along comes a leper, okay, this leper comes, he, this leper probably makes his way through the crowd, he gets to Jesus, and he kneels down before him. Now, many of you have heard this before, but leprosy is this horrific disfiguring skin disease. It causes damage to the skin and to the nervous system. And really, back then, there was no cure for leprosy. What leprosy does, it's this slow developing disease that what it does is causes the person that's afflicted to get these, they get kind of like this scaly skin that really would eventually develop into uh, dirty and kind of these smelly ulcers and these sores. You know, lepers often eventually um, lost their fingers. They would lose their toes and, because they, and, and even break limbs because they couldn't feel the weight of different things on their bodies because they were losing them. Their, nerve, their nerves were failing them. Oftentimes, they would cut themselves with a knife, and they wouldn't even know it. So this is a horrific disease that no one wanted to get or wanted to be around at all. Yet, believe it or not, that's not the worst part. All this stuff I just got, that's not the worst part of having leprosy. The worst part of this disease is the social implications that come with it. See, for Jews, really what it does, having leprosy rendered the afflicted person ritually unclean. And what that meant is that excluded them from all normal life and worship. They couldn't be around anything. They were completely shut off. And this person, what they also had to do, they had to, wore, they had to wear torn clothes, and they had to walk around, and whenever they got towards people, they would have to yell out, unclean, unclean. Could you imagine? That makes the scarlet letter look like a trophy. I mean, this is crazy. I mean, this is terrible. These people are just, they have to let people know, here I come, the diseased person, the, person, the outcast person, here I come. And as long, really, as this, this condition persisted, this person essentially had no place at all in society. Yet even with this debilitating and ostracizing disease, this man makes his way through the crowd, probably going, unclean, unclean. He's probably telling, saying all this stuff. And he comes and he kneels before Jesus and really makes this profound statement. He says, Lord, if you will... Or really, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Now, this leper, he's not, he's not asking Jesus, uh, you know what, uh, if you can, are you able to do this? He's not asking Jesus if he can do it. He's stating a fact that he knows that Jesus can make him clean. You see, what this leper is doing here is he's declaring his faith and his confidence in the power and the authority of Jesus. And look, notice Jesus' two-part response here. First, what does he do first? What does he do first? He reaches out and touches him. Picture, just picture that. I mean, we don't know. Who knows how long this man have had, had leprosy? It could have been years since this person had been touched by another human being. What an amazing act that was. It's as if Jesus really transcends the law of becoming ceremonial unclean by touching him. 
that he first and foremost wants to show him love and he wants to show him compassion by touching him. I just picture the people in the crowd just going, what is, what's he doing? As he reaches down and touches, nobody does that. Nobody did that. Next, Jesus tells him he's willing to heal him. And he shows him his power and authority and by simply speaking the command to be cleansed. And immediately, the man is cleansed. He's totally healed. Now, look at what Jesus does next. This is really interesting. He says, ta-da, my power. Observe my power. Do you see my power and authority? Go tell your friends. I'll be here all week. Try the buffet. No, he does not do that. Look at, what, look at what Jesus does in, in, in verse 4. He says, Jesus tells us to keep it on the down low. Don't tell anybody until you've shown yourselves first to the priest. Keep it quiet. Why does he do that? That seems kind of weird. We well, see the law stated that if a leper were to become cured, they would present themselves to the priest. They had to offer up this offering, and then they had to go through really this, this cleansing ritual before they got this really kind of the stamp of approval, official approval, to go back into society. And really, this took time. This wasn't something they just got and you know, went in line and, okay, I'm waiting for my stamp of approval. This took time to do this. You see, Jesus wanted, what Jesus was doing here is he wanted to prevent this healing from becoming the central focus of how people reacted to him. He didn't want to be seen as a circus side act. He wanted to make sure that people didn't misunderstand his ultimate purpose for being here. So go, don't say anything. Go do what you need to do. Go do the right thing. And he knew that that would take some time. So he does this, and he wants to, and, he, and this leper is clean. So now the next, next scenario, we see Jesus again demonstrate his power and authority through healing. And once again, this person's wholehearted faith, their faith in him, plays a key factor. Now, this is a long section. We're going to look at verses 5 through 13. This is it. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will, will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with, sold, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and another, come, and he comes to my servant. Do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel... Have I found such faith? I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at a table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of men, sons, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done. Let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. So here we have Jesus arriving in town, okay? He's gone through this whole thing with the, with the leper. He's cleansed the leper. Now he's arriving in town. He's confronted by this Roman centurion. Now centurions, they were guys that were in charge of 80 to 100 uh, soldiers. Now there's a number of things I want to really look at just real quick here that are really, really intriguing 
about this scenario, about this story. The first thing is this Roman centurion would even approach Jesus. That's the first thing. Why would a Roman even uh, come to him? Being a non-Jew, he really, this Roman centurion was a part of a regime that was really oppressing God's people. Yet he would still go and confront Jesus to ask him this. Also intriguing that this Roman soldier showed so much compassion for his servant. This is not something that was normal back in the Roman, Roman times. That he would show such compassion that he would actually break cultural barriers in order for his servant to be healed. It's also another intriguing element of this encounter is Jesus' willingness. He was totally, Jesus was like, sure, I'll go. Let's go. Let's go to your house and do this. I mean, this was a cultural no-no. You just did not do this back then. Jews were actually prohibited from entering the house of Gentiles. They, they weren't supposed to do it. It would really be, in some ways, it'd be, I'm trying, I was trying to find a picture of what this would look like. It'd be similar, really, to pre-civil rights America and having a white man go sit in the back of the bus or having a white man drink from a blacks-only water fountain. You wouldn't have seen that. It just would not have happened. Yet what we see here, though, is that Jesus was willing to cross even these cultural barriers in order to show someone love and compassion. Another thing, another thing that's intriguing thing to notice here is this centurion's attitude towards Jesus. He shows that he, re- he actually recognizes Jesus' power and authority. You see, although to most people, Jesus was just this itinerant preacher who we'll see in a few minutes really has, doesn't even have a home, the centurion treats Jesus as though he's too important even to come into his home. That's so interesting. He knew that Jesus was so important. No, you don't need to come into my home. You see, he understands how authority works. He gets it. He knows just as he tells a soldier or a servant, hey, go do this, or hey, go get that, just as he knows that that's going to happen, it's going to get done, so too he understands that all Jesus has to do is say the word. Just say it, and my servant will be healed. And from a distance, that's faith. Isn't that ridiculous? He believes in his power so much, he said, just no, don't even come. I don't want you to come. Just say it, and I know it'll be done. Wow. How many of us have that kind of faith? That is faith. And notice that even Jesus is blown away by this. He's actually taken back for this. I mean, this guy didn't grow up going to Sunday school. He didn't get the lessons. He didn't go to church. He didn't have friends and family members teaching him the scriptures. Yet he still had the kind of faith that expects miracles. Faith that expects miracles. And what a great example this guy is of true faith. It's not being religious. It's not being spiritual. It's fully recognizing the unique power and authority of Jesus. Final intriguing thing that I saw of this is about this scenario is that in verses 11 and 12, this is really weird verses here. You got to admit, when G- what Jesus is doing here in these verses is he's speaking against really Jewish common theology that said, listen, we are related to the old Jewish patriarchs. Therefore, instant access into the kingdom. We're in. No problem. 
We're related. It's automatic. He says that there's actually those, though, they're thinking that they're in because they're related to Isaac and Jacob and Abraham because they're his descendants. Look what he says. He says that there's actually those people that are descendants of the patriarchs who will not even get in. Remember, we talked about this before, last couple weeks, insiders and outsiders, true followers versus just admirers. So Jesus is speaking against that. Who, these, he's saying these people will actually go to a place that's reserved for ungodly people, for rebellious people, for wicked people. I wonder how often we do that with Christianity. It's kind of like we feel like it's almost positive way of guilty by association. Hey, I grew up in a Christian home, or I'm married to a Christian. I'm around it all the time. I'm, I'm in. It's all working. Remember last week? Talked about that. There's no guarantees of that at all. And we're going to see how, why, what, what the cost of really, what it really means to have faith really looks like. It's not heritage that it guarantees at all. It's faith. Faith like this centurion. You want to know what kind of faith should I have in Jesus? Look at guys like this. Total outsiders. Gentiles. Shouldn't have even talked to him. Yet he has total faith that he can do it, even from a distance. And because of his faith and authority that, and of Jesus' word, we see that the centurions, he just says, he was healed immediately. Done. That very moment, his servant was healed. All right, third final de- the demonstration of Jesus' power and authority is found in verse, verses uh, 14 through 17. It says, when Jesus entered, the, entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with the word and healing all who were sick. This was to fill what what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So we see here now that... Jesus keeps moving along here. Now he enters into Peter's house, okay? And he sees that Peter's mother-in-law has this debilitating fever. And the text goes on to say that he heals her, and he continues to display his power and authority by casting out demons and healing all the people that were sick. So he just keeps, he's on a roll here, okay? And we're going to see that he's going to be doing this more and more and more. And at verse, and here's the interesting thing about this. This is all done, what it says here in verse 17, according was to fulfill what was prophesied about Jesus by Isaiah back in the Old Testament, really some 700 years before Jesus even came to earth, okay? This is words about him. Look at Matthew 8, 8, 17. See what it says there? This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. So Jesus is fulfilling prophecy here. What Matthew is doing is he's drawing on this image of Isaiah's suffering servant to describe not only Jesus' ministry of suffering for our sin and dying on the cross, but to describe his ministry of mercy and actually bearing our sin and bearing our, our difficulties on his own body, our own suffering, our sickness, because he has compassion for us. You see, as, not, along with possessing great power and great authority, What Matthew is trying to do here is help us understand that Jesus' ministry is ultimately about entering into our world, 
It's about entering into our individual lives in order to bring us restoration and to bring us wholeness. And that's what these ministries like Roy and other people are doing to try to help people see even more so the excitement, not just be a cloistered Christian over here, but to be able to come together and see the amazing power and authority that comes in Jesus' word. So not only do you have a strong gathering of Christians, but your Christians are having an incredible influence throughout your entire workplace. Because of the power and authority of Jesus that he can just go say a word. But I think we forget that, those of us that grew up in church. We forget that Jesus can just heal someone with a word, don't we? Especially those of us that have been praying for healing for a long time over certain pain or certain things or certain that just not going away. And we've prayed for the cancer to disappear, but instead it takes the life. So what happens, we start to forget about the faith of the centurion. We forget what the leper was willing to go through in order to be healed. These people recognized the power and the authority in Jesus. You know, I saw, I was at a thing the other day where, uh, oh, actually it was up at camp. I think it was our camp. The speaker was talking about this very kind of thing and he put up a picture of Jesus. And those of you who have been around, oh, I remember the Christian bookstores. You used to be able to go to Christian bookstores and buy things. The picture of Jesus where he's smiling, he's, he's got the Farrah Fawcett hairdo. Um, and that's an old, that dates me, doesn't it? Um, but he's got this nice flowing hair, and he's got this little lamb on his shoulders, you know. Remember that picture this, the, of the meek and mild Jesus, you know, that you're thinking the Joe Weider is going to come and punch him out or something, you know, because what is, what is this? And Jesus was meek, and he was mild, and he was willing to be sacrificed. But we forget that in Jesus is all power and all authority, and that should impact our lives. It should have a huge impact on our life, and we're going to see in just a second here how that, does, how that happens. What Matthew's doing is helping us to see that by recording these to, uh, to understand Jesus' power so that we can make an appropriate response. Not the response of fear like I talked about or look or kind of, I don't know about people that have authority or power. That kind of scares me. But to really make the decision to wholeheartedly follow him. This is what Matthew's getting at. Matthew is getting at, look at. Look at Jesus' power. Look at his authority. And now you have an opportunity to respond. And here you go. So here's what he's going to do. But before that, before he lets you do that, what he's going to do is he's going to make it perfectly clear what this wholeheartedly following Jesus looks like, okay? He's saying, you got a choice to decide. And say you say, okay, I'm going to follow. I'm in. Jesus' power. Yeah, sounds great. I want in. Now the tables turn just a little bit. He's going to talk about what it truly entails. He's going to talk about truly understanding the cost of following Jesus. Look at verses 18 to 20. It says this, in our last section, cost of following Jesus. So after, these, after, so after Jesus separates himself from the crowd and readies to head across, I'm sorry, now when Jesus saw the crowd, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And, the scri- and a scribe came to him and said to him, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds have the air in the nest, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. 
Another disciple said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus says to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. This is quite a picture that we're getting here of what it means to follow him. So Jesus is getting ready to cross. He's, getting, he's done. He's ready to cross, this, cross the lake. And he's confronted by these two would-be followers. Okay? People that have done what we just talked about. Say, okay, sounds great. I recognize the power. I recognize the authority. I want in. Now, the remarkable thing really about this story that we're going to see here is not the two men, not the two men in them themselves, or it's really it's not about whether they respond to Jesus or not, because we don't even know. We don't even find out. The remarkable thing about this story is Jesus' response to each of them. We see here that Jesus' response, actually what it does here is it challenges our oftentimes easy or laissez-faire view of what discipleship, the approach to discipleship really means, what it really means to be a true, to follow, true follower of Jesus, what it really means to be a disciple. What Jesus is going to do is going to challenge anything that we see about that that's easy, not a big deal. Now, the first one, in this first one we see here, the following one, is a scribe. So he sees a, a scribe, okay? Because what he's going to do with a scribe, too, he's going to respond in a way that expresses this uncom- uncompromising demand that Jesus makes for his followers. And look what he says to this scribe. Um, it, and by the way, remember we talked about scribes? These were guys that basically, they were scholars, they were teachers of the Old Testament law. They knew their stuff, Okay? Now, remember also, remember we talked about, remember the scribes? These are actually the guys that are the same category that Jesus had earlier said that he called them hypocrites. He said, don't be like the scribes and the Pharisees. Why? Because they try to prove their standing with God by the things that they do, by their outward show, by their religious formalities. He's saying, don't do that. Yet this scribe, this scribe, at least for the moment, seems sincerely interested in following Jesus. He really does. He tells us that he will follow Jesus wherever he goes. Jesus, wherever you go, I'm in. Getting on that boat, going across the lake, I'm in. Let's go. Let's do this. But Jesus' response, really what it does is suggest for us that he hasn't really thought through all the implications of what it really means to follow Jesus. I mean, he's, he's probably most likely uh, picturing being a part of this grand thing, you know, where there'd be enthusiastic crowds and all these miracles happening. And, ooh, yeah, you're with him? Yeah, I'm with, I'm with that guy. He's probably thinking that's what's, that's what's probably coming. But he failed really to understand that following Jesus to be a true disciple of his comes at a cost, comes at a big cost. It entails self-denial, sacrifice, serving, even suffering. We've seen that as we've looked in this Sermon on the Mount. We looked at this, very, this verse last week, actually. Remember this verse in Matthew? It says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life, my, his life, my life will save, will, well, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You see, to deny ourselves, to deny ourselves means it, we are giving up our allegiance to our old self, giving up our allegiance to our old sinful nature, to set aside self-promotion for the sake of others and for the sake of Christ. 
That's what denying ourselves means. To take up our cross, what that means is, is because of the gratitude that we have of all that Christ has done for us, we are willing to choose to suffer. We're willing to choose the suffering that comes along with Jesus opposed to self-preservation. That's what it means to take up your cross. That's difficult stuff. To the scribe, Jesus is saying to truly follow me, what it means to really follow me means to not only to never have a permanent home, <laughs> okay, but never again feel at home in this world. You're going to feel like an outsider. To the rest of this world, you're just going to feel like I don't fit in. You might even be scorned. You might have been rejected by the whole rest of the world. That's what he's telling the scribe right now. Like we talked about last week, the scribe definitely was an admirer. He was an admirer. He was like, whoa, awesome. But we really never find out if he becomes a follower. We never find out. Now, the second would-be follower seems to be enthusiastic about following Jesus as well. And you'll notice that Matthew says, it says, in calling him another of the disciples, what Matthew is doing is he's using a term here for really a potential follower, someone who's really seriously, oh, I'm seriously thinking about doing this. I think I might want to separate myself from everybody else, and I might want to do this. I, I think, that, I, think I, I want to do it. I think I'm ready to make the leap. Yet this guy asks if he can bury his father first, and then I'll come, and I'll follow you, Jesus. I mean, he was most likely the eldest son. This was the eldest son's responsibility. They were responsible for this really what was an extremely important cultural duty. Now, on the surface, this request seems, it really seems completely legitimate, doesn't it? This is a huge cultural thing. Hey, my dad just died. Can I go bury him? Can I take care of the ritual stuff? That I'm in, and then I am totally in. Yet though it seems as he was even willing to join Jesus after. I mean, he was willing. I'm in. Now, no Jew would have ever begrudged this guy for this request. No one would have thought this guy, oh, that's, a, that's, that's totally legit. That is so fine. That's what makes Jesus' refusal to allow him to fulfill his obligation show, so shocking, I mean, what Jesus says here is absolutely shocking that he wouldn't let him do this. Yet what Jesus is literally saying here is that let those who are spiritually dead take care of those matters. Okay? Let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. You follow me. Wow. That is big. What may seem like really this abrupt, culturally insensitive response is actually what Jesus is doing here. He's underlining the radical importance of the message of the kingdom. Even the most basic family ties must not be allowed to stand in the way of following Jesus. Well, that doesn't mean we be rude to our family or we do inappropriate things. No, I'm following Jesus. I can't talk to you anymore. I know. But he's going to help us discern what these things, how do, what it means to really put Jesus as the first thing in our lives. Jesus asked this man to forego an extremely important and cherished responsibility in order to show his sincere, uncompromised, radical commitment to following Jesus. Wow. 
In a few chapters from now, we're going to see this verse. It says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Ouch. (laughs) Wow. That is huge. That sure goes against the whole, hey, you know what, just pray this prayer, come to Jesus, he wants to take you, he wants to hug you, and we know all the stuff that Jesus gives us, we know all that, but so often this message is ignored that Jesus is asking us to come and die, even to things that seem like he would want us to make a high priority, and we should, but not the highest. This is radical stuff. It's doing, once again, the jaws must have started dropping even more by what Jesus was saying here. We see here that truly following Jesus involves an incredible, radical mindset that is willing to even upset the social norms. That's how far Jesus was willing to let us know how important it is. When it comes to understanding the true reality of being a follower of Jesus, it really, it makes sense that popular enthusiasm for Jesus and his teaching, you know, because we see people are excited. People get excited. People that don't know Jesus get excited about Jesus. I've seen that. You've seen that. Jesus is my homeboy. I've seen, you know, I've seen this stuff and all these things that Jesus is wonderful and Jesus is great. But really, when it comes down to it, what really means to be a follower of Jesus, the enthusiasm wanes or it really goes away and it falls short of true discipleship. When it comes to really being a disciple, to really being a follower, that's where the world, and a lot of times we go, ooh, that's a, that's a little much. That doesn't seem right. And the enemy works hard to get us to doubt and to think twice. Oh, that doesn't make sense. You're not really asking that. You can't be really asking that of me. That doesn't make any sense. He's saying this. We, I think it falls short of true discipleship because the appropriate response to Jesus' power and authority or true discipleship that is, is a wonder, that is wonderfully life-changing is this wholehearted faith and radical devotion. This is the proper response. This is how we should respond. Not in fear, not in doubt. We respond by wholehearted faith and radical devotion. In a nutshell, to be a follower of Jesus or a disciple means to desire him above all else, to orient our entire lives around him. I stole that from Epic Church's mission or vision, the city and the church. That's their desire. They want to get people to, their, their dream and their mission is to have people to orient their lives around Jesus. I love that. To follow him wholeheartedly. Let me ask you this morning as we close, in what ways do you need to experience the power and authority of Jesus in your life. How do you need to experience? Maybe like the leper or the centurion or centurion's servant or Peter's mother-in-law, you need to experience healing. You need restoration. You need wholeness, whether it's physically, emotionally, whatever it is. Know that you can come to him in faith, believing that his power and his authority actually enters into 
your brokenness. That's what Jesus did. When he, when he came and died, he entered into, and this is the crazy supernatural thing, but he enters into our brokenness. He enters into our pain and heals us. That's how intimate Jesus is. We don't get that, I know. It's a supernatural thing, and it's an amazing thing. Or maybe you're like the would-be disciples. Maybe you're something that Jesus is calling you to take a the next step, a radical step forward to stop playing it safe. Maybe you sense that, okay, I'm not only all in, but I'm in in a way that I'm gonna stop putting up my little boundaries that keep me from going right to the edge. I'm not gonna play it safe anymore. I'm gonna recognize Jesus' power and authority and how it is calling you to count the cost of following Jesus. For some of you, what that means is even just making a public proclamation of your faith. Some of you have never been baptized before. Some of you have never made that public declaration that I am wholeheartedly following Jesus now. I want you to know, I want the world to know I'm doing this. Some of you need to do that. And we'll give you an opportunity to do that not too long from now. For others, it's going to mean finding out where God is working. Like I said, find out where God is working and join in. Find out where he's doing something and jump in, whether it's in our church or wherever it might be, okay? It could be serving. It could be giving, like we've just been talking about today, sharing your faith, getting involved in a Bible study. You're saying, I don't know if that's for me or not. I'm not sure. Go in that. Get out of your comfort zone because I want to be wholeheartedly follower. I want to be a, a true disciple. I want to be willing to count the cost. And the cost is probably going to be something uncomfortable to your flesh. Most likely, it's going to be uncomfortable. But that's where God's power and God's authority is experienced the best. When we're willing to step out, not and do, but to be crazy, well, maybe be crazy, maybe, but in ways that the Lord is directing you. Maybe He's doing that for you. However, the Spirit of God is speaking to you. However, let me encourage you. I just want to encourage you to take that next step. Okay, whatever that might be, I can't tell you what that is. But ask Him, what is that next step? We're going to have people up here that'll be willing to pray with you. That could be a great catalyst for you to say, I want to go to the next step, but I need help with this. I want prayer. I want encouragement in this. I want to be helped launch into this. Come up and get prayer. That's what this time is for. I really want to encourage you to do that. All right, let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it encourages us, but it, wow, it really challenges us especially when you look at this passage, what it really means to be a follower, what it means to really, to really recognize your, the power of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, and how we can rest in that, and how we can move forward out of our comfort zone in that. I pray that I will do that. I pray, God, that I will recognize your power and authority, and may that change me. May that push me to radically live for you, and to look at deep, dark corners of my heart and search out what needs to be changed. God, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for your love and for your power and authority. And it's in that power and that incredible authority in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.